In this interview, I'm joined by Greg Kaminsky, host of the Occult of Personality podcast and author of Proneos, Reflections on the Preliminary Practices of Buddhist Tantra. In this episode, Greg details his over 20 years of extensive occult studies, including his daily magical practice regime, and reveals why an encounter with American-born spiritual teacher Traktung Kepa Rinpoche saw him leave behind the path of Western esotericism in favor of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Greg shares just why Traktung Rinpoche impressed him so much and contrasts the view of magic and entity binding in the Western esoteric and Buddhist traditions. Greg also discusses his new book on Ngundro, the so-called preliminary practices involving hundreds of thousands of repetitions of special prayers and prostrations, and recounts the profound spiritual transformations that occurred when he himself took up this practice. So without further ado, Greg Kaminsky. Greg Kaminsky, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Steve. It's wonderful to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Congratulations on the publication of Proneos, Reflections on the Preliminary Practices of Buddhist Tantra from a Western Perspective. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this is a really interesting book, particularly the way you blend Western esotericism with these traditional uh, tantric practices. I found that to be very, very fascinating aspect. It's actually only one or two chapters, but really I thought that part was especially interesting. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, my teacher had instructed me to write this book, Tractum Rinpoche, and after I had completed the preliminary practices myself, and because I had spent so many years researching, learning about Western esotericism, practicing it to some extent as well, and my background in it was just probably as deep as most other people's involved in that at least and so once i had completed the preliminary practices of buddhist tantra it was easy to really draw the comparisons especially through conversations with tracting rinpoche um many of which are available publicly as the freedom place podcast so if people are curious about some of the conversations behind this book, you can find them there. And so it was fairly easy after having, you know, studied Western esotericism and then studying uh, Giovanni Pico della Mirandola specifically in depth, I had like a very firm notion of what a spiritual path was what it was meant to do sort of the basic components of it in terms of methodologies and those are actually exactly the same in many authentic spiritual traditions although they take different flavors and forms the functions are essentially identical and that's not to detract from the beauty and majesty of individual spiritual traditions and their idiosyncrasies and unique qualities and rasas flavors but um it's i think it, it's crucial for people in the west to to be able to understand these in a comparative way because it helps one 
I think, ultimately do the practice when one better understands it at a fundamental level. That's actually something I'd like to return to in a little bit of depth later. Uh, but first, perhaps we could start uh, with your early life. Uh, could you tell us something about your upbringing, actually, the context of your upbringing, and also how it was uh, you became interested in this dimension of exploration? Sure. So <clears throat> I was born um, into a family that um, is Jewish, but not really religious. So that meant that they, my parents sent me to Hebrew school, but we didn't really practice Judaism as a religion in our home. Although later on, we started celebrating like Shabbos and some of the other holidays, but eventually they sent me before my bar mitzvah to this Orthodox synagogue. And so that ended up where I'd have to like practice the entire Sabbath service, which was, I don't know, like two and a half to three hours roughly. So I was practicing this for more than a year, every single day. So minimum like two hours, sometimes a lot more than that. So for a 12 year old, that was probably a lot more than I was prepared for and um, wanting to do. And I think it kind of did something to me because uh, ever since then, and maybe even before then, I'd always had like really deep questions about, you know, who am I? What am I? Why am I here? What is this place? Is there some greater purpose to all of this? There's got to be because it doesn't make any sense. And these are questions that I was continually asking and wondering about. And um, I think at some point that led me to question what I was doing in terms of a job, a career, because it seemed pointless on some level to just try to advance and then make money and climb some corporate ladder. And uh, I think at that point, I kind of, I had a sort of a mystical experience, you could say. And at that point, it was clear that uh, the question I, I really had at the, at the beginning of that experience was, you know, what specifically is, is the point of my incarnation, if you will. And uh, the experience was basically as sort of a wild kind of Kundalini out of body experience. And that was, I interpret that as the answer to my question. And so from there, I started to explore all sorts of esoteric traditions and ancient mysteries and trying to figure out, you know, what is, you know, the answer to these ultimate questions. So that led me to create the podcast, Occult of Personality. That was sometime around 2005, 2006. And, you know, along the way, I became a Freemason. I 
practiced ceremonial magic. I learned about tarot and alchemy. And, and then I met my teacher, Tractung Rinpoche, and he teaches Vajrayana, Buddhist Tantra and Dzogchen view. Uh, so once I met him, it was clear very quickly that he could actually answer all of these questions that I had. But it was also very clear as he explained that in order for me to actually apprehend the answers to these questions that I was going to have to transform who and what I was at a fundamental level, because intellectually knowing it wasn't actually being it. And, and you can't really know it if you're not at being it. So there's in lies the crux of the problem if you will. I'm curious about the mystical experience that you mentioned, this Kundalini style experience. What was the context of that? So um, at the time I had been exploring shamanism and usually when I do things, I tend to just go completely overboard, like way into the extreme. And this was no different. So um, I was at home one night and I had obtained some salvia divinorum and I was going to smoke it. And it was not just the normal salvia. It was like the enhanced with the extract like 25 times. And so I, you know, turned the lights off. I lit some candles on the altar and some incense and I prayed and asked, you know, that that through this act, somehow it might be revealed what my purpose was, like, what should I be doing? What am I supposed to be focusing on? What is the answer to all of this? And then I sat down and I smoked the salvia and I had pretty much instantly uh, had this Kundalini sort of experience where it was like an out of body experience but just kind of like hovering on the ceiling and just felt like my head had been kind of split open and you know being aware that like somehow I was sitting on the sofa and looking at the room and yet I was on the ceiling simultaneously that was bizarre I never even thought that that was possible really and um then hearing like a voice but not really being able to determine exactly what was said and and then it was over fairly quickly after that but i had this amazing feeling of uh utter peace and contentment and what i would come to later discover is this feeling of non-grasping which is real not really a feeling it's more of an absence of feeling in a way like an openness that is an absence and that is just really some of the most pleasant uh phenomena that i've ever encountered so that was the context of the mystical experience it's very interesting you write in proneos i spent years more than a dozen in fact 
pursuing various Western esoteric paths and teachers, trying to find the key to unlock the truth of reality. Who and what am I? What's this realm? Why are we here? I engaged in a variety of practices, listened to countless teachings, struggled against my own nature. You go on to uh, say that all the paths I encountered were not really complete. The teacher hadn't necessarily accomplished the path himself, and there was no evidence the path had even been designed by one who had attained some level of profound spiritual realization. I cannot fully express the levels of frustration, disillusionment, and bitterness that I experienced because of the failure to find an authentic spiritual path that worked for me. I began to believe that all the books and teachings were only half-truths. I began to despair and feel physical pain and discomfort. I lost hope of ever finding a way to understand reality and my place in it. You mentioned that you're not a man to do things in half measures. So I'm curious, in this phase you mentioned shamanism, you've also mentioned ceremonial magic, uh, Freemasonry and so on. I'm curious what your regime was, if you like. What uh, you know, I expect it changed and evolved over that, that seeking period um, of a dozen years or so, over a dozen years. But what sort of regime, say, in your ceremonial magic, you know, peak of that activity would you have would you've had? And I'm curious, you've expressed here, it didn't really do it for you. It, but I'm curious if you got anything out of it at all. What uh, did you get out of it, if anything? Uh, and then, of course, we go on to talk about when you met your teacher, Tractor Rinpoche. Well, it definitely bore fruit. There's no question about that. And I think somehow, for better or worse, some of the fruit it bore was, you know, where I am today, you know, having met my teacher and on a different path, but uh, a path that is also fruitful. So it's, it's not like it was fruitless. It's just that what I said there is true. There was no teacher who had attained enlightenment. I'm not sure that whoever designed the practices had, you know, was any sort of wisdom being. And I can't really know if that's really the purpose or the goal or the result of, you know, if one continued to do that over a lifetime or even many lifetimes. But uh, what I would do typically is I would wake up at usually around 5 a.m. or 5.30 and I would, you know, wash and then I would begin, you know, with a series of uh, practices that would include like the Rose Cross ritual and then the lesser ritual of the pentagram and then I would do the middle pillar meditation and then I would do a meditation from David Goddard's book, Tower of Alchemy, which is a series of fairly intense meditation visualizations that is intended to sort of engage the subtle body through the meditation, if you will. And it, for, it is fairly effective. And so, you know, it did bear results. Um, I had, you know, certainly had, you know, what you would call mystical experiences as a result of, of those practices. And um, they definitely bore fruit in terms of 
the sort of bliss states or Gnostic intoxication that, you know, is typically encountered in tantric practice. So they do work, but they don't, they don't really lead specifically to any ultimate result in like a tantric path or any sort of authentic spiritual path in like Jewish Kabbalah or Islamic Sufism or esoteric Christianity or, you know, obviously Tantra in its various manifestations. Um, so there's probably others that I'm not naming here and I don't mean to leave them out, but you get the idea. Yeah. In those systems, of course, there are various degrees of attainment, sometimes marked by experiences, other times marked by capabilities that one develops. And uh, there, I think, there is at least maybe a superficial commonality with certain conceptions, anyway, or presentations of the tantric path said that, it's, you know, one can develop even with mastery of shamatha. Uh, one can develop various cities, supernormal powers of various kinds, for example. Uh, some of them are a consequence of the training, passive consequence. Others can be actively developed through various different means. Also, another superficial similarity is working with entities of various kinds. We have, say, Goetian magic, for example, and then various uh, tantric practices, uh, working with entities, etc. I'm curious if you ever explored that side of things in those days, cultivation of cities, for example, however they would have been seen in those traditions. And also if you ever worked uh, with entities or have experiences there and how you would compare those experiences, if indeed you had them, with your now tantric path. That's a good question. So yes, in the past, I had worked with angelic forces specifically and found that to be quite effective uh and in terms of how it would compare to the tantric path um it's harder to say because it, on the tantric path like i as the practitioner am not doing any magic in that sense so, and this is a sort of a weird answer, and I'm going to try to explain myself as best as I can. So typically, like the guru and the gurus, like members of the guru's mandala would be the ones that are really performing the magical acts, which would include like what you're talking about, like offerings towards uh, other deities, uh, entities, protectors, what have you. And, and then even if like I was, I was the one who was doing those offerings and practices, it wouldn't really be me as I would conceive of myself or as you might conceive of me in like an identity sense because at that point it's the deity who does the practice so yeah in that sense so no i'm not doing any of that at all nor would i <laughs> at any point so i hope that makes sense but i can understand if it might be a little murky it does make sense yeah 
of course, if you want the iconic tantric practitioner, Padmasambhava himself, to put it uh, politely, recruited many uh, local spirits into uh, service of, you know, protecting the lineage and this sort of thing. One could see it as a sort of binding, perhaps. I mean, there are, I think there are some similarities there between the sort of action that perhaps Padmasambhava did and the sorts of activities that Western esoteric practitioners might engage in, a sort of binding of spirits to specific purposes, sometimes across eons of uh, service, perhaps not. Yeah. You're, you're grimacing, so. Yeah, I, I would say there's a, there's a major distinction there, which is Padmasambhava or Guru Rinpoche had absolute, complete enlightenment or realization or whatever you want to call it. So in his binding or employing these beings, whether they be worldly beings or enlightened beings, he's, he's sort of binding them to the service of wisdom, right? But when you're talking about Western esoteric practitioners, uh, you know, with, with few exceptions, um, you were not talking about enlightened practitioners at all. So therefore, they can't sort of bind other beings to the service of wisdom, because they don't actually, they can't enact wisdom themselves. And so therefore, the methods might be the same, but the purpose and the ultimate result can't be the same, I guess is my, would be my assertion there. Hmm. And, and I, you know, that's an, that's my opinion. So I could be wrong and I am open to being wrong, but that's what I say. Yeah. It's very interesting to compare with your, with your experience, particularly of Western, Western occultism. You write here, I've discovered it seemed remarkable at the time, but now only seems obvious and logical that it was only by learning from a living teacher who had attained gnosis and then practicing the methods he prescribed that I was able to make any significant progress. And that teacher is Traktung Kepa Rinpoche, who you met in 2017. So I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about him, who he is, and how he's positioned in the sort of wider religious context of Tibetan Buddhism as it, as it appears today. And then also how it was you met him? Okay, I'll try to do this in reverse order then. So um, I had a friend, David Chaim Smith, who is a writer and an artist um, who publishes books primarily about Kabbalah, Jewish uh, mysticism. And I'd been talking with him for many years. And I knew he had a teacher, but I didn't know who his teacher was. And I wasn't even really sure if his teacher taught Kabbalah or something else. And his position was always, I can't tell you who my teacher is, I'm not allowed to, and he doesn't take students. And so it's not even worth talking about. And for many years, I just accepted this. And uh, at some point along the way, like I, you know, you'd read that section of the book where I had started experiencing physical pain and discomfort. And I was in many ways ill, uh, although it wasn't just a physical illness, it was a spiritual illness as well. And at that point, Dave said, well, maybe it's time for you to meet my teacher. 
because I was really just not doing well and just kind of in a downward trajectory. And um, I was in a lot of pain on a daily basis. And I was having trouble really just sort of functioning on a rudimentary level. And um, so that I went out and visited the teacher, Tractung Rinpoche, and I met him and very quickly became apparent like that he not only had the answers to the questions, but he was the answer himself. And his, his way of being demonstrated the answer to these questions. So it was quickly became apparent that I was going to be a student, but then the question became like, would I move out here or not? And I realized I did want to after being here for a few days. And so eventually I did. And, you know, that was how I met him. Um, in terms of his position, he's a, so he's a Buddhist Lama uh, in the Ning Nyingma lineage of Vajrayana. And uh, within the Nyingma, he's represents a householder tradition um, that specializes in things like, you know, subtle body practices, uh, working with nature spirits and other deities. Um, and he has a number of specialties that are involved in the work that he does uh, that are quite extraordinary. I guess I could say is probably as best I could describe it. And in terms of who or what he is, uh, I don't know. I guess the best I could describe is if you've ever had the experience of the dissolution of subject and object into a single mystery that's who and what he is like because the the more time i spend with him and the longer that i know him i have more faith and and less doubt but i also have no idea who or what he actually is at all and i it's a complete mystery to me and i hope that doesn't sound like i'm trying to you know, not answer your question or in any way disrespectful, but, you know, that's my impression. Fascinating. You write, you may have preconceptions about the term guru or feelings about the nature of guru-disciple relationships, but like all other concepts, you must eventually let them go. We should think of and view our guru as the embodiment of the divine, as they will personally and impersonally bring us from delusion to wisdom. Finding and choosing a master teacher to be your guru is no casual selection, because your life, your future, and your potential to realize wisdom will all be bound up with the guru. So be careful, deliberate, and thoughtful when considering a teacher. You mentioned there that when you met your teacher, that uh, it quickly became apparent that there, there was something special there. I'm wondering if you can recall any anecdotes of that recognition, and now, of course, having been with him for some years, uh, we were saying before the call, you, you work uh, f uh, f for him, can we say, with him? Yeah, for him. 
Yeah. yeah. You spent, I presume, a significant amount of time with him in various different situations. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious from your side, I suppose, from your perspective, uh, share any anecdotes that illustrate how it was you came to this view. The view of him as my teacher, you mean? The view that he is uh, an enlightened being, a mm-hmm. wisdom being. Of course, you said it's difficult to exactly describe what he is, and fair enough. But there was presumably a process of you going, wow, this is this is something special here. Can you perhaps describe what it was you noticed? Was it something he said? Was it an experience you had? Was, was it observing him in different situations. All of these are said to be ways of assessing. So I'm curious if you can share any anecdotes from that that time period. Yeah. So I guess during my first visit, what I would say is that at that point, I'd spoken to, interviewed more than 200 authors, teachers, mentors, what have you, in various Western esoteric schools or, um, and so, and I'd also studied under a number of these people for years in some cases. And at the time I was also getting a graduate degree in medieval studies. So I had other professors that I was working with and had a sense from them about, you know, how does one best learn? How does one take guidance? Um, You know, how does one work? Like all of these sort of aspects. And then once I met Tractung Rinpoche within a talking with him very quickly. And then over the next several days, it was obvious that he understood all of these things way better than I I did. And he he was uh, exquisite in his ability to communicate. And, you know, so his communication is flawless. And, and is also I came to see how his vision and the way that he sees is also flawless. And so he has the capabilities kind of point out and, and thereby, you know, remove things that basically cause people to not be able to see reality, I guess you could say. And I've seen him demonstrate this through watching him teach in conversation uh in various actions uh it's like it's basically non-stop if you're around him it's all he's really doing is working to kind of try to make everyone see reality the way it actually is and um I also see now that that job is just incredibly difficult with endless challenges because people are endlessly challenging because I, you know, I see it in myself. So it's, it's not like I, 
but mostly I see it in other people because it's always harder for us to see it in ourselves. So I think that's been my experience. So I don't know in terms of like enlightenment, like to me, what that means specifically, like what is wisdom is, and that's like the, you know, you, there's many ways you could try to describe it, but it's essentially the, the recognition of reality as it is, which doesn't include subject object dichotomy. It doesn't include um, substance material phenomenon. And it doesn't include consciousness as an actual or beingness as actual, you know, realities in any way, shape or form. What are the sorts of challenging behaviors you've witnessed in others or indeed yourself uh, in relationship to him? I mean, what are you thinking of when you say that that's a hard job because of how people are? Yeah, I mean, there's, I think the one that immediately comes to mind is most of us at a fundamental level seem to have an inability to follow instruction, which also demonstrates a lack of appreciation for hierarchy, a lack of respect for, and a lack of devotion, lack of attention and mindfulness. Like it, it reflects like all, an entire host of bad qualities. Or, the, or poisons, as you might call them in, in Buddhist language. So to me, that's the one that, that really stands out the most, you know, is the failure to be able to follow instructions, even when attempting to do so. Can you give an example? Um, I think, you know, a good example is like... Um, like one time uh, I had been instructed not to, to go somewhere to get something that someone had requested and needed. And I felt like the person's need for the item overrode the instruction not to do it. And I just on my own was like, well, it's more important to just go get it. So I'll just do that instead. And And then it was clear that like, that was absolutely not the right thing to do. And because it was a very simple sort of instruction, but it was also easy for me to rationalize not following it. And then, and then it became apparent what that, the implications of that were. These things are tend to be quite simple on the surface. And then they reveal deep, delusions and obscurations. And so I know that that example seems very mundane and uninteresting, but yeah, it, it revealed like a complete, complete lack of being able to see how things actually are. So I don't know if that really illustrates my point, but hopefully. The sort of category of example you're talking about there, it's Classic, isn't it? Uh, Guru, disciple, uh, teaching. Uh, Often one thinks of high teachings and Shaktipat transmission and secret whispered mantras and so on. And of course, that's part of it. That's there as well. But uh, oddly enough, it seems that in a sense, 
these ca casual examples, more superficial, apparently superficial examples, can be just as transformative as any of those more esoteric methods. Oh, absolutely. Because, and, and this is again what I discovered studying Western esotericism and the way, the way that these spiritual paths kind of align is that the, the, at the fundamental level, what's being expressed as the path is really simple and straightforward. It's just incredibly difficult to do it. And so, yes, the most transformative moments come in direct interaction that, that would seem casual, but is, is never casual because those are the moments when the guru and others can really affect a shock and like really illustrate something that, you know, maybe would otherwise be unseen. You mentioned Tractor Rinpoche's has very uh, extraordinary specialties, you said. Or some of the listeners of this of this podcast are practitioners of Tibetan Buddhism or, you know, various uh, similar systems. And uh, I think it might be interesting if it's possible to list some of those specialties that you find extraordinary. And also, who were Tractor Rinpoche's teachers? That also, I think, is something that people see a very great emphasis, it seems, in Tibetan Buddhism on lineage and on you know whose teachers are whose teachers are your teachers etc cetera, et cetera, and the lineage going back but perhaps you could say something about that also um well i don't know what i could say specifically about his teachers i mean because it's a kind of a complex situation i can say his root guru is thinly norbu rinpoche um but in terms of his instruction or realization, I think that is a function more of his past incarnation. And that's really as much as I could say about it, because I don't really understand it that well at all. And I hope that's not a problem. <laughs> I'm asking the questions and you're just yeah. answering whatever you answer. It's not a problem at all. Okay. So, but I might probe a little bit more if that's okay. Sure. So are you saying that it's not as simple as saying these were his teachers and they taught him this and that led to the other? You're, you seem to be saying he has some uh, self-realization perhaps, or perhaps as some people in that lineage claim, communication with, uh, say, deceased masters in, in other realms, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, yeah, the, so the, it would be the latter in that situation, yeah. And, you know, the, I don't know really what I could say about that specifically. So, and I only met him in two, 2017. So, you know, and at that point he was already expressing, you know, complete realization. And like for me to listen to him teach and what he was saying and the way he was, was all the evidence that I needed. You know, but you asked about specialties. Um, I don't know, there's so many different ones. Um, one would be the development of his disciples as, you know, whatever 
you know, they're meant to be, I guess you could say, is one aspect, you know, and the creative works that have sort of flowered around him from artwork to music to, you know, hopefully some books now um, and other things, uh, you know, it's really amazing. Um, he's an artist himself. He's a poet. Um, he recently released two books of poetry that are just sublime. Um, one is called Juan Jouet, The Dark Unlearning. The other is Fragile Joys and Luminous Secrets. They're both available on Amazon. And it's just like a glimpse into the enlightened mind, basically. So, um, you know, other things, it, it's like, it's so eclectic and wild. Like I know one thing is like being able to affect the weather, you know, just as a sort of a, what we would consider mundane thing, but it's in no way that clearly. Um, and so that in and of itself is extraordinary. What I think we would all consider a city or power that is not mundane. And that's just really like the tip of the iceberg. There is a tradition of Namtar or spiritual biography or hagiography of gurus. And so are you saying that um, in your group, in your Sangha, Chakran Rinpoche's uh, biography is not really recounted or emphasized. It, there's more of a focus on current activities. Is that what you're saying? Because presumably there are some people who knew him before he was expressing, as you say, you know, complete realization, uh, or uh, maybe maybe the, I'm not framing the question correctly, but are details of his biography known in your group? Um, I think they are known. It's just like some of the things are really just not talked about. Like, because he doesn't really talk about them. I guess that's how I would express it. And so if he doesn't talk about it, it's not something I feel comfortable really talking about specifically. Do you mean to say that you know details that you don't want to talk about because you don't think that, that he'd, he'd do it himself, so you don't want to go there? Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. So there are you do know the details, but you just rather not talk about them. That's perfect. Yeah, there are details I know, but I definitely wouldn't share them because he doesn't share them, and it seems... They're not irrelevant, but they're not, they have no effect on who he is specifically or what he does other than, you know, it's like the effect that they would have on people listening is greater than it should be, perhaps, the type of thing. I don't know. Best for me to just stay silent on that. Perhaps one last question on on the issue of your guru. I mean, you write about him in uh, extensively in the book, uh, and particularly your devotion to him and and how transformative the relationship was. So I think it's apropos to focus a little bit on him. It, yeah, it's it's a linchpin. In fact, you said that it's the relationship with the guru is essential and can't be done without him, and so on. So if I think back at what I little bit I know about Tibetan Buddhism, institutional acceptance isn't synonymous with spiritual realization. I think a classic example is Dujom Lingpa, 
who also, I, I think, claim to have no human teachers, uh, for example. I'm not saying that's what Tractor Rinpoche is claiming, but there's some similarity there. How certain figures are viewed after their death or some generations later um, can depend, it seems, on how successful their lineage was in propagating, uh, etc. So what I mean to say is that my next question is not necessarily a verification question, but a, more of a context question. Do you know how Tractor Rinpoche is seen in the broader institutional or community of Tibetan Buddhism? Have you seen him interacting uh, with any uh, recognized teachers or people who consider realized lamas, for example? Is he plugged in in, in that sense or, or is he an isolated figure? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I know he was... Uh, close with thinly Norbu Rinpoche, as I mentioned, who he sees as his root guru and that, you know, who he met with several times. And I think in terms of like what you're talking about, like verification within the hierarchy of the lineage and the tradition, like, I think that comes through his association directly with thinly Norbu Rinpoche who verified and vouched for him publicly. So I guess that's the, the link there. Um, and I know that he was, or has in the past interacted with several Tibetan lamas and teachers. Uh, I think many of those were also, you know, connected with thinly Norbu Rinpoche as well. Um, and I think he has also, I know <clears throat> that uh, people connected with Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche have been to visit. So I think, you know, he is sort of plugged into the larger community, if you will. But at the same time, he doesn't really have a concern for politics or hierarchy or appearances in terms of like what we would call optics. Very interesting indeed. Let's turn now, if we could, to your book Proneos, a book about Mundro the so-called preliminary practices. Perhaps you can say a little bit about what they are, a set of practices uh, with a certain number of repetitions that one does. And uh, you uh, walk through some of your own experience uh, with those practices, and also you lay out how to do them and share certain insights you've gained uh, from your teacher and your own experience along the way. And as I mentioned before, you also have some fascinating contrasts or uh, comparisons with Western esotericism. And in one part of the book, you write about, you lay out the practice as it was presented to you. And it's uh, qu quite a fearsome endeavor. You write, it can be frightening to many people who hear about what is required to accomplish this set of practices. One may feel overwhelmed, intimidated, possibly even helpless. And here is what I was presented with. Number one, each practice must be repeated until 100,000, no, wait, how am I going to say this? 111,111. That's it, isn't it? That's it. <laughs> um, accumulations are accomplished. One should endeavor to complete these accumulations in less than three years, but they can also be done while in solitary retreat over a period of months. Number three, not finishing is worse than not starting. 
So if you start, you really need to finish. Once started, we're like a snake in a tube. The only way to make progress is to move forward. Four, I was told how these practices are quite challenging and accomplishing them may require working through existing psychological, emotional, and physical issues. And indeed that did happen to you as you recount in the book. And number five, accomplishment of the practices is a prerequisite to progressing further on the path, meaning that there is simply no way to study or practice the more advanced levels of the esoteric path without doing these first. You also write, it's my understanding that many modern Western practitioners either avoid these preliminaries completely or attempt them, but spend so long in trying to accomplish them that it becomes a wasted effort. Don't let that be you. <laughs> can, you can you say a little bit about uh, these practices, uh, what, what they are and what function each of them serves? Sure. So yes, Nangdro is a Tibetan word that means before going. And so these are the practices that are intended to be accomplished before proceeding upon the path. So I called the book Proneus because Proneus is the sort of porch of the temple prior to entering the temple proper, which would be these, the practices beyond the preliminary. Um, so it consists of several practices that can be arranged or configured in in a way that might be suitable for the lineage or the specific practitioner but the way that they are presented to me is um, first refuge which is practiced through prostrations and visualizations and repetition of mantra and then a purification practice which is also a visualization and mantra of a deity. And then a mandala practice, which is involves enacting generosity by ritually giving away everything. And that's pretty much when I say everything, I mean, everything you can imagine, and then things that you can't even imagine. And then <clears throat> beyond the mandala, um, practice um which is is i think quite challenging itself um you have the guru yoga which is a six-day retreat which involves um specific visualizations and mantras and um practices uh you know again you know 111,111 repetitions of, of these and um, the result of the guru yoga retreat is if you've done all of these practices authentically and faithfully, uh, the guru yoga retreat will result in what is referred to as a tongue tip taste of the mind of the guru, which is in this enlightened state, um, which it, you know, it would be referred to as like a non-experience or, um, you know, perceiving without being something along those lines. So there's a taste of it. And, the, and really the purpose of doing all of these repetitions of these, all of these practices ultimately is in an alchemical sense, if our existentiality, you know, our physical body, our subtle body, our qualities, our activities 
all of these things are our existentiality. And prior to Nangdro, essentially, it's like a colander, like you pour the blessing force in of the teachings or whatever, and it just flows right out. But Nangdro is designed to seal those holes. So you have a vessel with integrity. So when the blessing force is poured in, this the being's existentiality can contain it and work with it and and then use it to further grow and so that's really the the general idea of it a key ingredient it seems of the process is the intensity getting all that done in three years is no mean feat and in fact uh, another part of the book when you're describing some western esoteric crossovers you talk about alchemy and heat being uh, the essential ingredient to turn something into to turn a substance into something greater than than it is as it stands. You were at one point doing up to five hundred full body prostrations a day. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the intensity as you experienced? I understand your your Ngundro did not get off to a great start, but it, when it got rolling, it it got rolling uh, with quite, uh, quite an intense pace. Can you talk a bit about intensity in your experience uh, and how important it is in in the Ngundro? Yes. Um... So yeah, my my Nongtro did not get off to a great start, and uh, I had physical issues and mental issues. Um, you know, part of it is like the idea that one can actually do this oneself, which is just not that's not possible. So it should be immediately discarded because. Yes, you have to show up and do the work that's required, but really the guru is the one that makes it work, makes the whole thing possible, makes it easy to overcome the despair and doubt and the uh, inability to accomplish. And so you, we just have to rely on the guru to, to be able to do it. And that's one of the things I came to understand. Um, but the intensity is important because, yeah, you're right. So if we're talking about alchemy, which is exactly what this is, then you need heat. And so the heat is provided through the friction of the practice because the practice is intense. Uh, on some level, part of us does not want to do it at all. And so there's that friction. And then there's the friction of the number of accumulations. So there's a friction in that sense, just because it's so many accumulations. It takes time and it takes attention. And it's just, we're not used to being that attentive really is, is, is ultimately what the problem is. So it's work. And so there's heat. And the, sort of a heat and the heat is a purification. And then because you're right, in order to produce something of greater value, something of lesser value has to be removed. And so once you get up to 500 prostrations per session, then you're generating a tremendous amount of heat and momentum and you've really worked your body into tremendous physical shape and you are able to 
stir up all of your obscurations and you know desires and aggressions and passions and all of these things every time you bust through 500 prostrations and you know this stuff will automatically then come up and then we engage the purification practice to cool it down and remove it all so these things all work in a holistic and a fractal sort of a manner they all build upon each other they work together and doing them as a single entity is really powerful because each one builds and like allows us to do the others better in the book that you discuss these obscurations and hindrances and, and recount one of the uh, challenges you faced was physical injury or at least what appeared to be physical injury and you had to reckon with that it seems also psychologically um were you going to continue or not how are you going to navigate that are we going to be deterred by this physical injury can you talk a little bit about that what was the physical injury and what was the process there it seems when you uh, resolved that pro when you resolved your relationship to that injury somehow it seemed to be a key moment in your ngundro uh, path yes so um almost immediately after i started trying to do prostrations um i had what felt like some sort of abdominal injury like some muscular injury or i don't know what it was it hurt that's all i knew and it hurts really sharply when I was trying to actually do the prostrations. So I knew something was wrong. And I knew if I kept having a sharp pain, I wasn't actually going to be able to do them, even if there was nothing physically wrong with me. It felt convincing enough. So I just was like, that's it. I, something's going on. I can't do it. And so I kind of wrestled with that for a while. And then finally, my teacher said, well, okay, just take a break from the prostrations and just, you know, practice the visualization and the mantra, but just don't do the prostrations. He said, you know, go for a walk and, you know, visualize it. And so I did that for like a year. And then after a year of doing that, I think, I figured, okay, if there is a physical injury, a year is enough time that it should have healed, number one. And this other part was like the realization that if I couldn't do the practice, like the whole thing might be a waste of time. Because I wasn't really looking for like a religion or a religious faith tradition to practice. I was looking for an esoteric path to practice. And so I wasn't going to be content or satisfied with just, you know, being handed a, a sadhana to practice every day and just, you know, just focus on this and just, just practice the teachings. Like I was probably not going to accept that and would have tried to find something else. So at one point it became like either you're going to do this and move forward or you're going to give it up and not move forward and have to live with that. And I just felt like, which I, I seem to all like run up against this circumstance continuously. And so I just decided, I was like, okay, well, one more shot then. And like, let me really give it a try and, 
like really be mindful of it and try not to overdo it and just see what happens. And I was like, if I can do it, I'll do it and not, you know, not give in to the fear and the concern, the self-concern. And so I, then I started doing the prostrations again and um, I worked it up very, very slowly at first, like three prostrations at a time. And that was only like every few days. So the, the amounts of prostrations I was doing at first were laughable, but I needed to prove to myself that I could do the physical exercise without hurting myself. And I was, because on some level I was thinking like, it's the, maybe my form is bad and that's why I injured myself because I wasn't doing them correctly. Well, it turns out that that's not really what's happening. I, and I learned later that whatever was hurting was on some level caused by just not wanting to change, not wanting to engage a practice that was going to fundamentally start to change who I am. And so there's a, a self-existence sort of instinct that kicks in and says, even if like, I can't see it directly, like it's, it knows exactly what's going on. It's like, nah, this is a bad idea. Like this doesn't lead anywhere good. We're not going to go down this road and I'll, we're going to throw up roadblocks and we'll start with this and we'll see, see where it goes from there. And, and that's really what Nangdro does is you, you learn how to accomplish things. You learn how to overcome your own self-perceived limitations. And a big part of accomplishing Nangdro is just learning how to overcome your own limitations. That's very interesting. And also interesting, it seems that Traktor Rinpoche didn't point that out to you at the time. Instead, he gave you a workaround or a, uh, something to do in the meantime. And, and it occurred to you somewhat by your own uh, experience, it seems, this understanding. Is, would that well, be fair to say? Or, or... I, I wouldn't say that's completely accurate. I mean, he suggested at the time, I think, that it was what he would refer to as like a Sarno condition, which is a reference to Dr. Sarno and this what many people would refer to as psychosomatic condition, but that in, in the Sarno understanding that that's not really accurate. Like there is an actual, there is pain and there might be a condition, but it's not actually necessarily physically based in that context. It could be mentally caused or emotionally caused, but the it's manifesting in the physical body or it feels that way. And so, yeah, I think fundamentally that's what it was. And he tried to point that out, but it's like, it's like he says, he always says, you know, information is not transformation. So he can say it and I can intellectually know it from him saying it and hearing it and saying, oh yeah, it's not, it's not a real physical injury, but until I can understand it 
through the practice over time, it means nothing. So that, and that's how Tantra works, really. So you have to kind of go through it in order to really know it. Hmm. I'd like to ask you before we end about uh, what you've written there about Western esotericism and Tantra, a couple of points. But before we do that, you mentioned that when you came to Tractor Rinpoche and you met him for the first time, you were in a very dark place, uh, psychologically, physically, uh, spiritually. I'm wondering what happened with that dark place. Did that begin to lift at some point? And if so, at what point? Uh, what kind of condition do you find yourself in now, uh, comparatively? Yeah, I mean, I think that started to turn around as soon as I met him, really. Um, so I have uh, Lyme disease, and around the time I met him, I just started to undergo treatment with a traditional Chinese medicine, and that seemed to really work well, and I still use that today. And I feel... 100% better than I did at the time. And um, I firmly believe and know that a good part of that is because of the spiritual practices from Nangdro, um, that uh, some of them, which I still do to this day. So they're very beneficial in ways that are multidimensional even if someone is not trying to attain enlightenment or benefit beings, um, it's still vastly beneficial. So yeah, it's been a lifesaver, truly. And how long since you finished Yungundra? It's been... two years, a little like two years and three months or so roughly. Yeah. But more and more time doesn't seem real in the, in the way that it used to, like, I still keep track of the days and the seasons and whatnot. But when I think about thinking back, it just doesn't, it's not the same as it used to be somehow. I don't know what to say about that. What else has changed? Um, I no longer think of anything as ordinary. That has changed. There's nothing that's ordinary or mundane in any way, shape or form. And we live in a world that's completely magical and extraordinary and, uh, there's not enough time or energy to actually appreciate it fully. If I might ask, you write in the book a lot about the self. What's your experience now? And, and I understand in the book, you're not claiming to be enlightened, or, uh, for example, so I'm not suggesting that you are. Um, I'm not suggesting that you're not. <laughs> it's just yeah, I'm not. You're not, not. You're, you're not claiming that. Not. Yeah, okay, no, you're not no. claiming that, right? I'm definitely not. 
Well, you know, you're, you have, you know, you're engaged in this path very deeply. How has your sense of yourself changed? Well, I mean, I used to have a, a self-identity and think of myself as a real existent being. And I no longer believe that because I've seen the truth, which is that I, that Greg is a concept, an idea, and a, a fairly laughable one at that. Um, so it's funny on one level, but it's kind of sad on another because I can kind of see through the unreality of it without being able to experience the the full reality of of wisdom so it's painful in that regard because i'm there's still a self referential impulse and that self referential impulse feels bad at the fact that it doesn't live in truth that even though it might know it on an intellectual level and have tasted it at times, it's still elusive, even though it's right here, right now, always. So, but on, but on, a, on a fundamental level, I have the opportunity every day when I do practice to sort of nullify myself and see reality as it is and so i'm grateful for that opportunity every day and as a human being that is really the best that i can hope for i understand you may not be able to uh, or willing to answer this question but what is your practice now you finish your nundro and of course many possible practices that one can do after that it seems what is your practice these days well, what I can say about it is it is um, it falls within what is characterized as generation phase Buddhist Tantra practice. So I believe that is within the, the Yana system that would be Maha Yoga style practice, visualization of the deity represent repetition of the mantra but in nyingma style practice uh, each sadhana always includes both generation and completion phases so there is still a completion phase portion of the practice but that's i'm really focusing more on the generation phase aspects which is you know the clarity of the visualization and recalling the the meaning of the details, the repetition of the mantra. And I think to a great extent, sort of exploring the three samadhis and sort of the, the dissolution of the self and sort of how that process occurs, I guess you could say. Or at least trying that, that anyway i wouldn't say i'm doing that but trying to do that presumably that's a daily practice and i'm wondering 
how much of your day is dedicated to, to that form of practice. I ask you uh, because I'm curious and also because, you know, I know you mentioned before, you're not a man to do things by half measures. Yeah, I think it varies because um, I have a wife and children and I have a, a full-time job. Um, now, thankfully, Thank Tractum Rinpoche has allowed me to do practice while working for him at times, but other times not. So I would say my the amount of practice I do each day varies. Some sometimes it would be like two hours a day, but other days where I'm able to do practice while at work. It could be five to seven, eight hours a day. There were times during Nangdro when it was probably 10 to 14 hours a day. And um, <laughs> those were days were the best. I got to be honest with you. Like in the moment, it felt really intense but it was very blissful. So yeah, more practice is always better, I guess you could say. 10 to 14 hours a day, wow. Um, we're, our time is coming a little bit to an end. I'd like to ask you about the grail. Before I do, what is it you do for your teacher? You say you're working for him. What, what's your well, job? Yeah, well, I mean, I published this book, the Proneus book, and uh, we just published his two books of poetry, which I mentioned earlier. And we're about to republish his two previous books, Original Innocence and the second, Eye to Form. Uh, it, so both of those are going to be coming out shortly. And then um, we have a book of oral teachings that have been transcribed that we're working on. And then beyond that, we have a book of generation phase teachings that we're hoping to release as well and there might be more beyond that we'll see but um that's that's what a lot of what i've been working on um prior to that you know it was the freedom place podcast and you know some other you know projects um so that's primarily what's what it is very interesting indeed. So I mean, I, I keep mentioning and I keep saying I'm going to ask you about it. And that, well, now here's the moment. It's come. Uh, but that, you know, there's a very interesting section of your book where drawing on your extensive study and practice of various Western esoteric systems, you make some very interesting comparisons. And I think those who are interested in that, I'd recommend getting the book, Proneos, and reading that uh, firsthand. But there's one in particular that I, I'd love you to say something about, and that's the Grail. You go through four, the, the great work, uh, Gurdjieff, and this sort of thing. You talk about alchemy, and uh, you talk about uh, the Grail, and you also talk about the Temple of Solomon. Those are the four main ones that you, you deal with, and actually in quite some detail. And Can you say something about the Grail, Parsifal, and... Oh, the, the wounded king and, and all this that i think that was a very very fascinating section of the book can you can you uh, say something a little bit about that yeah thank you so i'm i've always been enamored with these um grail legends and these stories of the knights of the round table and this quest 
And, um, you know, one of the things that really stands out about this story is that there's this, this situation where the king, in, in many of these stories known by the name Amfortus, and he's been wounded, grievously wounded, and he's ill, and he can't seem to recover from his wound. And the kingdom is suffering as a result. And even the, the very land itself is sick and the crops won't grow and the people are starving and it's, it's terrible. And, um, you know, it's, it's understood really that the grail is the only thing that's going to heal the king. And um, Percival, I think, sort of on his quest, sort of comes to this scene of a banquet at this castle with the wounded king. And he has some intuition that he has to sort of speak up and, and sort of ask a question, but he doesn't really feel comfortable. He doesn't really know what to say. He's just very uncertain and not sure of himself. And he doesn't do it and he feels terrible and the king's still wounded and everybody's suffering and he has to live with the shame of that he could have tried but he he didn't he didn't take action that would have made a difference and so he then wanders in the wasteland for years and reflects on the fact that when the time comes you must seize the moment and you cannot let it pass you by and so when he somehow manages to get back to the castle and the banquet he doesn't waste his opportunity and he asks you know whom does the grail serve and it's really this question itself which heals the king right in the story and so i feel like that is a, a really interesting aspect because it's this it's this understanding that um, it's this act of service of self-sacrifice and not self-concern, which is the thing that heals. And so it's this understanding of a, of a being receptive and not being so active, um, but they, they mix together in these stories. And it's, it's really beautiful because at its heart, what, what the story is really expressing is that um, we are composed of many eyes, as Gurdjieff would say. We have many eyes. And, and one of these eyes longs for the divine and longs to know wisdom and truth and live in that. But the many other eyes that we're made of have no intention of living in truth and wisdom and they want to sit on the couch and eat ice cream and watch tv or believe that they're the smartest or do whatever you know is not that not the thing that would bring us closer to divinity and so the idea is that we need to develop a chief steward, a king, or a ruler who can then, you, you know, employ these other aspects of our being as these knights and send them on a quest to sort of overcome their own inadequacy 
and lack of attention and devotion to the cause of the quest. And so this story really employs this idea of the nobility of the quest and the sacrifice of the quest and the idea that we must engage with ultimately with the divine feminine in order to grow as as men and great you know and generally as human beings so that's a lot of what i take away from that story and i think it's really crucial because it's been a capstone of the western esoteric tradition for so many years and um I think it really does serve the purpose to illustrate these points in a beautiful, beautiful way. Yeah, wonderful. I think an aspect of the Grail myth that speaks to me in your telling also is the place for failure <laughs> and inadequacy. That's very important. I think that's very important. Yeah, if we don't actually learn if we don't fail. It's, it's when we fail that we have the opportunity to learn and understand why did we fail? How did we fail? How can we not fail next time we have the opportunity? And the tantric path presents you with that every day, every single day. And so we, we work with our own failures and inadequacies and we learn how to overcome them, you know, and part of that is not seeing ourself as a self-existent individual with self-concern, because that is not what's really going on in the first place. So if we can see things from a more accurate perspective, it's, it's certainly a lot easier to do this. If you, if we see things as the, the self-existent I it's almost impossible. It just reduces down to nothing. There's no justification for it. It doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> that view. Yeah, it uh, it doesn't. Self concern just generates more self concern, and it doesn't lead to wisdom. It leads to aggression and sort of jadedness, and yeah and indifference. And, and that is not what we're going for. Well, Greg, this has been a fascinating conversation. I know we're out of time now, but thank you very much. Uh, Proneos, Reflections on the Preliminary Practices of Buddhist Tantra from a Western Perspective. And whereabouts can people find out more about you? Oh, thank you very much. Well, they can find my podcast at occultofpersonality.net or wherever you get your podcasts, Occult of Personality. You can also find me on Facebook and Twitter, The Cult of Personality. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram and uh, my email address if people actually really want to talk with me or have questions. The email is the best, uh, brothergreg at protonmail.com. Greg Minsky, thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.